Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible study class this morning. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins. I'm filling in for Dr. Tim Jennings. Uh, Tim and Christy are still down under on the other side of the world in Australia. So if you keep Tim and Christy in your prayers that their mission would be successful, they would have traveling mercies, and we'll look forward to seeing them back here. Also, I wanted to just mention, if most of you may have heard, that Pastor Ron Halverson Sr., who's been battling cancer, passed away uh, yesterday. Um, if you didn't know that, really sad. Pastor Halverson, my daddy, got rebaptized by him after a camp meeting in North Carolina in the, the late 60s. So I don't think I ever met the man, but he altered the course of my life significantly. Anyway, I know that we were raised differently because of coming in contact with Pastor Halverson. So I've heard him say in several sermons. I listen to him online a lot, and he says his wife's name is Carol. He says, "Carol, make sure that when I'm buried, that the podium and the mic is buried with me because I'm going to come up preaching." I've heard that. I've heard that too. That he said that he was not afraid to die. The next thing he would see is Jesus, and he was going to come out of the grave preaching. So. <laughs> But while we wait, I know that his family is, is grieving and is, is sad, despite the hope that they have. So if we keep the Halverson family in our prayers, uh, let's bow our heads and we'll start class with prayer. Father God, thank you for uh, allowing us here today to meet, to study, um, to fellowship. Uh, we pray this morning for Pastor Halverson's family. Um, we know that they are hopeful, but we also know that they're sad, and we would pray that you would just be very close to them, let them feel your presence and your comfort in this time. Um, we pray, and we know this weekend, last weekend, there's lots of young folks graduating. Um, we pray that you would keep them close. Um, let them keep you close and continue to be their master teacher as they kind of hurtle on into adulthood. Um, bless our class. Bless Tim and Christy and their travels. Bring them back to a safety, uh, a safely keep Keep teaching us, please. Be our master teacher. Keep showing us um, who you are and who we should be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're studying Lesson 9 in the Quarterly of Luke. And the lesson title is Jesus, the Master Teacher. So any thoughts on why Jesus took on this role of master teacher? during his earthly ministry. And do we think that it just started during his earthly ministry? Was it limited only to his 30 years on this earth? Or has he always been, will forever be our master teacher? Because he had a life to live, an example to give, and also... The Israelites, with whom entrust, was entrusted the truth, got so off track. Yeah, he really had to course correct. People were going <laughs> to repeatedly the wrong image of God. Yeah, so I mean, I even went back further than that. Unfallen beings, Lucifer. Was there education needed there? Character development needed there? What about the whole experience of creation? Wasn't that educational? Wasn't that evidence or an explanation or a rebuttal of the charges against him? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when he was walking and talking with them. I think he was teaching, I think he was educating. And then I have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Israelites. 
kind of understood Russell. Well, uh, uh, who better to be the, the teacher than the designer? That's right. Yes, exactly. If you, want, if you want it straight from the, the origin, you know, talk to the designer. Right. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, and I'll, I'll mention it here. Have you ever have you ever registered for a class, signed up, headed down to the campus bookstore to get your textbook? You pick up the textbook and you figure out, uh-oh, the professor wrote the textbook, actually authored the textbook. To me, this is our learning experience when we have Christ as our master teacher. He literally authored the book on humanity, and he wrote the law of love. So, I mean, who better to learn from? And we're going to talk about that. And I've got so many quotes today. If you're not a Spirit of Prophecy fan, you're probably not going to enjoy this class. But i got a lot of quotes. I hopefully can get through them. Um, And I thought about just what happens... In the mind, we just finished a, a book study on Tim's first book, Could It Be This Simple? We held a study, what, eight, nine weeks? At Hamilton Community Church, Russell did an, just an excellent job. We went through that book with some folks that I think may have been familiar with Tim's ministry. They have been to his seminars that we've held at the church, but are not regular attendees of this class. It was really enlightening. Um, and I mean, I left there marveling even more how fearfully and wonderfully we are made, particularly our minds and our brains. If you think about what happens in our minds and our brains, both when we learn and when we teach, because I hate to tell you, we are all teachers. I mean, Jesus, the master teacher, is teaching us how to teach. Because we're teaching each other, for sure, if you have children in your life, whether you're a parent or an aunt or a cousin, you're teaching constantly teaching this class, something different happens in your study and your learning when you are, when you know you are dedicated to teaching rather than just soaking up knowledge. Um, and I, I think this healing of the minds, this setting our minds back into harmony with how they were originally designed, if the new covenant experience is to have the law of love written there on our hearts and minds, I know at least for me, my mind is going to have to be healed and changed and transformed in order for that to happen. Because its natural state is not receptive. So the name of this class, this ministry speaks to the importance and the value that comes from reasoning out, wrestling through these issues with a teachable spirit. One of the founders of our church, I think, agrees with this. She says, the agency of the Spirit of God does not remove from us the necessity of exercising our faculties and talents, but teaches us how to use every power to the glory of God. The human faculties, when under the special direction of the grace of God, are capable of being used to the best purpose on earth and will be exercised in the future immortal life. Ignorance will not increase the humility or spirituality of any professed follower of Christ. The truths of the divine word can be best appreciated by an intellectual Christian. Christ can best be glorified by those who serve him intelligently. The great object of education is to enable us to use the powers which God has given us in such a manner as will best represent the religion of the Bible and promote the glory of God. We are indebted to him who gave us existence for all the talents which have been entrusted to us, and it is a duty we owe to our creator 
to cultivate and improve upon the talents he has committed to our trust. Education will discipline the mind, develop its powers, and understandingly direct them that we may be useful in advancing the glory of God. Don't we all want that? So it doesn't sound to me like we're supposed to check our, our intelligence, our reason, or our judgment at the door. Let's look at Saturday's lesson. The quarterly describes the desperate conditions on earth at the time when Christ came over 2,000 years ago. Did, you, did any of you read this? From Saturday's lesson, it says, Humanity seemed to be fast reaching its lowest point. The very foundations of society were undermined. Life had become false and artificial. Disgusted with fable and falsehood, seeking to drown thought, men turned to infidelity and materialism. Leaving eternity out of their reckoning, they lived for the present. I mean, is this a description of before Christ, Jerusalem, or was it yesterday's headlines? (laughs) It says that understanding this background will help us better understand why Jesus taught the things he did. Any thoughts on that? Do we think that Christ taught what he did because of what was going on at the time, or did he teach the things that he did because those are the things he's always taught? I think he was trying to get a modern-day Israel ready for the kingdom. This uh, description uh, had happened before, had mm-hmm. happened before the, at the time of the flood. Right. And you know, Christ had been attempting to teach humanity you know, to retain a knowledge of God yeah. given to Adam and passed down through Seth and then into Noah. And ultimately, there was only one one guy who got it. Right. So, uh, goodness, intervention had to be made. <laughs> So instead of wiping out the humanity again, right. starting from scratch, Christ said, you know what, I'm going to come do it. I'm going to come reveal the Father. And, he, and, and when that state happens again, they'll have to return a second time. To intervene. Oh, that's a perfect segue to my next quote. So much of Saturday's lesson content, you read the content, whether it was quoted or not, came from Chapter 8 in Ellen White's book, Education. Chapter is titled, The Teacher Sent from God. I think it's the rest of the chapter that is so insightful and so profound. It's kind of long. I'm going to read it to you if you don't mind. I hope I can make it through the whole quote because it speaks to my soul. It speaks powerfully, I think, to what we teach, the concepts that inspired this ministry, and it goes a long way towards explaining Christ as the master teacher. Just as Russell just said, the quote starts, There was but one hope. For the human race, that into this mass of discordant and corrupting elements might be introduced a new leaven, that there might be brought to humankind the power of a new life, that the knowledge of God might be restored to the world. Christ came to restore this knowledge. He came to set aside the false teaching by which those who claimed to know God had misrepresented him. He came to manifest the nature of his law to reveal in his own character the beauty of holiness. Christ came to the world with the accumulated love of all eternity. He showed the law of God is the law of love, an expression of the divine goodness. He showed that in obedience to its principles is involved the happiness of everyone, and with it the stability, the very foundation and framework of human society. 
Does that sound anything like natural law, design law? God's law is given as a hedge, a shield. Whoever accepts its principles is preserved from evil. Fidelity to God involves fidelity to humans, every human being. Thus the law guards the rights, the individuality of every human being. It ensures their well-being, both for this world and for the world to come. To the obedient, it is the pledge of eternal life, for it expresses the principles that endure forever. Christ came to demonstrate the value of the divine principles by revealing their power for the regeneration of humanity. With the people of that age, the value of all things was was determined by outward show. As religion declined in power, it increased in pomp and circumstance. The educators of the time sought to command respect by display and ostentation. To all this, the life of Jesus presented a marked contrast. His life demonstrated the worthlessness of those things that most people regarded as life's great essentials. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work, from the study of the scriptures and of nature, and from the experiences of life. Hopefully those sound really familiar to you in this class. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. That's from Luke. Thus prepared, Jesus went forth to his mission, exerting upon men, women, and children an influence to bless a power to transform such as the world had never witnessed. Anyone who seeks to transform humanity must understand humanity. Only through sympathy, faith, and love can people be reached and uplifted. Here Christ stands revealed as the master teacher. He alone has perfect understanding of the human soul. Christ alone had experience in all the sorrows and temptations that befall human beings. Never was another so fiercely beset by temptation. Never another bore so heavy a burden of the world's sin and pain. Never was there another whose sympathies were so broad or so tender. A sharer in all the experiences of humanity, he could feel not only for, but with, every burdened and tempted and struggling one. So what does it mean to you to know the God of the universe feels for you and with you when you are burdened and tempted and struggling? When he taught, he lived. What he taught, he lived. He said, I have given you an example. He said this to his disciples, that you should do as I have done. I have kept my father's commandments. Thus in his life, Christ's words had perfect illustration and support. And more than this, what he taught, he was. His words were the expression not only of his own life experience, but of his own character. That's from the book of education. Powerful. So have you ever had that kind of amazing teacher? Somebody that can motivate you, push you to do more than you ever thought Maybe you you were capable of explain these inexplicable concepts in a manner that you could finally understand or gave you these light bulb aha moments. If in our degenerated, kind of pitiful state, we can still produce teachers like that, can you imagine 
what it was like to learn at the feet of Christ. Yeah, a whole different level of learning. All right, so let's look now at Sunday's lesson. Sunday's lesson is entitled, The Authority of Jesus. And it mentions this week's memory text. Uh, is from Luke 4.32. It says, They were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. I looked up um, the Greek word translated for the word astonished in this text, and it literally means blown away. So those that were listening to or seeing Jesus act with authority were blown away and dumbfounded at the power of his authority. There's a number of things taught from birth. And there's a number of things. We're going to talk about them um, that kind of went against the conventional wisdom of why he why would he have authority. Um, and it's interesting that this is accounted by Luke. Luke was very acquainted with the role of authority. All types of authority. He was a physician, he was a scholar. He learned at the feet of Jesus. He traveled with Paul, was acquainted with ecclesiastical authority. He rubbed shoulders with all kinds of authority at all levels of authority. And he repeatedly emphasized in his writings that Jesus' authority was unmatched. And the question is why? He was born in the Piddly, some here with the Hick town of Nazareth, which was known for nothing. He grew up in a humble carpenter's home. He wasn't rich. We don't have any biblical evidence that he went to university or studied at seminary. He held no position of power. So what is it that people were seeing? Where did he get this authority from to confront virtually everyone? He confronted Roman rulers. He confronted Jewish scholars, rabbis, secular and religious leaders, ordinary folks. He got part of it, most of it, constantly being in prayer with his father. It was closely connected. In fact, it's interesting. I don't know what the what the ratio is, but in reading the pre, the pretext or the context of almost every text where it said that he spoke with authority or people were astonished at his authority, the previous text said that he spent the night in prayer with his father, or he was he went away, removed himself from the crowd to connect with his father. Yes, Wendell. Truth is often very powerful. It's never not, I think. You know, and when when truth is revealed, you know, it has its own source within it. Exactly. Of importance or mm-hmm. power or whatever. Yes. It, there's another, the end of the quote from education here. So the scribes and religious leaders that were teaching the people, they spoke by authority. They were quoting prophets, people that had preceded them. Jesus spoke with authority, with authority as the creator, with the authority of the Father who had sent him, with the authority of his perfect life. He spoke and acted so that even his enemies had to admit that no man ever spoke like this man. Not just in words and works, but in his life as well. Jesus spoke with absolute certainty, without contradiction or confusion. Christ's authority derives from the fact that he was the very embodiment of truth. From the previous education quote, it says what he taught he was. Not only did he teach the truth, but he was truth. 
It was this that gave his teaching power. Some of those light bulb moments that came from the consistency of truth, Mm -hmm. it made sense. Exactly. That's the common reason. Yes. It's not like, well, I said so because of this reference and this reference. Right. But it is that natural law that shines through that they kind of went, wow, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think it was difficult to conceptualize it until they saw it lived out in front of them. Yes. Yes, Peggy. Um, several online want to know, um, want to be sure you cover, how can we be sure that when we say, God led me to do this, he really did? Or are they using it for an excuse to do what right. they want to do? I have that. That's the little comment box, I think, several at the bottom of Sunday's lesson. So I had optional around it. Now we won't make that optional. <laughs> yes, please. In addition to the authority that he brought from the Father, one of the, the best gifts that he had I think was was in like in John 2 at the end where uh, verse starting with verse 24 but Jesus would not entrust himself to them being people for he knew all men he did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man mm-hmm. so the power that you have if I understand everything about you or the group I'm with before I even begin to yeah. talk, I can aim what I have to say in such a way that it makes the most sense to you. Right. And I know you. And speaks directly to their needs. And you them all. Exactly. Intimately. Okay, so let's look. Sunday's lesson gives a couple of biblical examples from Luke, uh, events where Christ's authority was particularly recognized. So if we have some folks look up, there's three, three passages. One is Luke 4, 31 through 37. Somebody look that up. Someone look up Luke 5, 24 through 26. And someone else could look up Luke 8, 22 through 25. And whoever has Luke 4, 31 through 37, shout that out. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed of a demon, an evil spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice. How far am I supposed to read? Through 37. Through 37. Uh, He cried out at the top of his voice. Ha! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What is this teaching? With authority and power he gives orders to evil spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Doesn't it make sense that that would have been kind of a topic of discussion? The message says they were surprised and impressed. His teaching was so forthright, so confident, so authoritative, not the quibbling and quoting they were used to, not to mention that he spoke demons into submission. And the message says he was the talk of the town. Yeah. It would be today, too. For sure. Fascinating about that interchange with the evil spirit is that the evil spirit's character is so warped that they, they view God as the destroyer. Exactly. They view don't hurt me. Destroyer. Have you come to destroy us? Or some <coughs> some versions say, have you come to torment us for yeah. our time? Mm-hmm. Um, when in reality, 
that their their character is already fixed, and and their their character is what's going to destroy them, and are tormented in his presence. Yes, is my guess. Exactly. But it is interesting. I think it's just a it's a huge revelation of actually what the religious leaders also thought. Yes. But the demons were honest and forthright enough to say it. Um, who has Luke eight twenty two through twenty five? Anyone? One of those days, he and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let's go across to the other side of the lake, so he put out to sea. But as they were sailing, he fell off to sleep, and the whirlwind revolving from below upwards swept down on the lake. And the boat was filling with water, and they were in great danger. And the disciples came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he, being thoroughly awakened, censured and blamed and rebuked the wind, and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there came a calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? Where is your faith, your trust, your confidence in me, and my veracity, and my integrity? And they were seized with alarm and profound reverent dread. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even wind and sea, and they obey him? I think we would marvel still. Let's look at Luke 5, 24 through 26, another familiar story. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he said unto the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy couch, and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them, and took up that thereon he lay, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. This was also astonishing to folks, because originally, I mean, before that, he said, which is easier for me to say? I forgive your sins, or to say, get up and walk. Just so it's clear that I'm the Son of Man, and I'm authorized to do either or both, arise, take up your bed, and walk. That, I mean, that had to be astonishing to these folks. And the last week we weren't able to be here, but I watched it online, and you were talking about the rich man and Lazarus. Right. I didn't get a chance to say anything at that point because I couldn't find the chat thing. But, <laughs> uh, but in any event, to me, it was remarkable, too, that he raised dead. But the rich man and Lazarus, of course, had Lazarus in the name, who we know later right. raised from the dead. And here it's really a prophecy mm-hmm. saying to the very people who were going to have a reaction, uh, even they said, oh, you know, raise him from the dead, send him back to my relatives. And right. his point in that whole parable is if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe me, even if someone comes back from the dead. Exactly. And then Which it did. actually raised <laughs> Lazarus. The same name yes. from the dead, and they re- responded exactly as he, as predicted, he predicted would. Yeah, it's not an end of life thing. It's a it's an actual prophecy of how the people he was even if he went to raising the dead, they still wouldn't get it. Totally agree. No. Yeah, he called it. When we say that uh, Christ came to show his character and also to to let us know who Satan really is, mm-hmm. and what his character is like. That's what he was showing in all of these situations. I mean, the the Jewish leaders, what kind of character must they have had to have sat there and listened to truth that was so incredible to everyone else, and yet their hearts were hardened even more as they listened? That shows Satan's character. 
I agree, but I mean, I, I think it shows it shows our character and it shows the power of believing a lie. Yes. Because, I mean, that is twice the son of hell. I can tell you those people that did not already have a distorted view of who God was were much easier to reach than the people whose characters were warped and who accepted the, the misrepresentation of who God was. They could not accept the contrast of the truth as compared to what they had, had grown to believe. It was really difficult to get through. We saw a DVD one time where it had a current day rabbi and he was from the Pharisees. He said, mm-hmm. all, ra- all Jews today are from Pharisees, he said, and a Messianic Jew. And they were actually debating. And I can- you could just put a robe on that guy, <laughs> and he could have been in Jesus' time. Right. Because he said astonishing things to me. He, he showed no relationship with God, where the Messianic Jew did. Mm-hmm. He, picked- he picked and picked at all kind of things. And he even said that, yes... Uh, the law, the Bible, or the law, the Torah gives us the right to make rules to explain, but that meant to make more right. rules. And that they believe those rules over Absolutely. the Bible itself or the Torah. So evident. And you can see when Jesus says, you make up rules, you make life almost impossible, impossible to live. You don't do it yourself, but you demand right. it from everyone else, and you hold above God's word, <clears throat> rules made by men. Exactly. And, you know, you can see a current day example of that very thing. It was really astonishing to me. Yeah, for sure. I would say one more quote, but it, it's not the last one, so I won't say one more. Um, this is from uh, Testimonies, Volume 8. Oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead with that. No. <laughs> Speak. Uh, just my thoughts about uh, the Pharisees, the Jews being so close to Christ. Uh, we are in so much danger of that. We have the truth. No doubt. You know, we we already have it. So there's really no room for growth and new light. Ellen White talks about how we should have continual growth and new light. But if we have the attitude that we have the truth, then we don't need anything else. Exactly. So that's why. We are rich and in need of nothing. Yes. We're so going to talk about that here. That's today. one <laughs> angle. But I think the other angle, which we've talked about in here too, is fear. Yeah. Which is, I know for me, the text in the Bible growing up about, if it were possible, even the very elect will be deceived. And that text always very much intimidated me because I, I thought, well, you know, I'm not the, I, I, I'm not stupid. I've got a brain. Yeah. But I'm not the most elect on this earth. I'm not the smartest person, right. the brightest bulb in the pack. Right. Sarah, you know, and I know that. So unless I think I'm that. Oh my, I could be deceived. Right. So fear steps in, and I think we in Christianity have been so made to be so fearful mm-hmm. of the devil. And I mean, I do think that we need to realize he is very powerful. Right. But we are so fearful that we're like, okay, no, I don't want to hear anything else because I might be deceived, which yeah. means we don't think, we don't come and reason, exactly. we don't process and and grow with Christ because we were so fearful of making a mistake, yeah. which comes down to, again, of I've got to do this thing right. Mm-hmm. I have got to earn my way here. Right. And if I make the wrong choice, the wrong path, oh, boy, I'm yeah, done. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> Do we not have more faith in God than that? Exactly. And we're going to talk about that in relation to 
I mean, he says you have to learn by practice the power to discern the right and the wrong. You know what I mean? It's not just evaluating truth, it's evaluating deception. We have to be able to recognize both, I think. And the only way you do that is to practice. If you, Sorry. Go ahead. The, the key part of that text is if it were possible. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yeah. The, the very elect are those who are so settled into the truth about God's character, about Satan's character, about God's government, Satan's mm-hmm. character, Satan's government, and the relation of and what sin is and, and what sin does, they're so settled into the truth about all of those things that they can't be moved. It's not possible to move them. So maybe the question here, Russell, is I know the devil's stronger than me, but I know God is stronger than the devil. Well, yes, I mean, stronger than is, is a big umbrella. Uh, he's certainly smarter than humanity, but he can't... He, he, the, the rules of engagement, he can't force us to do anything that we don't choose. Okay, it, 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 brute force is, mm-hmm. not, is not acceptable. It can't be done. He can only lead us into certain pathways, and he does so by deception. So if you understand the truth, which sets us free, then it, it's not possible to be deceived. Yes, I agree. agree. But it's only, again, by practicing and bumping things up against what you know to be true, what you know coincides with scripture and science and nature and experience, that you learn by practice to to see something and say, eh, that doesn't doesn't jive. I need to study that more, or I'm going to reject that. But that is a skill. That ha- it's a muscle that has to be built. It is not something we come here knowing. Yeah. That does not necessarily mean putting it up against what we've been taught for 50 mm-hmm. years. Amen. Yeah. Yes. Could be the word, the biggest mistake. Yes. We we talk around these issues a lot. <coughs> excuse me about knowing the truth and knowing, you know, in my mind where our basis of power really lies. And for the Pharisees and for those who depend upon men or a community or a society of men to be able to sort of convolute or, or twist things so that you can't come up with a, with a quick answer to them, mm-hmm. that's their source of power. Sure. And so for us, we have to understand that with all the... You know, with all the, the three levels of experience that we may have, you know, our own personal experience, nature, and, and the Word of God, that we have to come back to us being settled with the natural law that we understand that God operates His world in mm-hmm. and that we can operate our own world in. Absolutely. And I feel that. If I had tried to come down to the level of someone else in, on many, many occasions through life, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. Because they would have killed me or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I know that the basis of my very existence relies on the fact that I have to have that relationship with God that will keep me within that design protocol. No question. Peggy. Uh, 
Patrick and Omaha, question for the classroom to be read. When we see so many people in our churches looking and sad and speaking of so much despair in the lives, could that be an indication that such a person has become stagnant in their pursuit of the truth? What do you think? Or a misunderstanding of where truth leads. Right. If you do not trust the truth giver, <laughs> then you will fear the future mm-hmm. of what it may, or what he may do to you or lead you. Correct. And I mean, it, it's very scary. The almost decade I've spent in this class has had some scary moments. When you shake the very foundations of everything that you thought you knew or that you thought was true and take that out to its ultimate conclusion and know that you are going to have to shift every paradigm, what does that leave you? I mean, that's really frightening because, again, the way I was brought up, there wasn't a lot of questioning. There wasn't a lot of digging. There wasn't a lot of wrestling out. There wasn't even a lot of reasoning, to be honest. Um, so again, those those were not those were not skills that I was I was well versed in, and knew that I was going to have to get there because I had to question everything. So it's a different kind of fear, you know what I mean? Um, and there is there was promise and hope and something positive at the end of it, but it still shakes you to your core. At least it did me. Um, All right, so we'll skip this quote because we need to talk about uh, this optional, what what I marked optional. At the bottom of uh, Sunday's lesson, it asks, does doing thing in in God's name or saying God led me to this automatically give us or our actions authority? And how do we know? How do we know if God led us to something? How do we know if someone else is saying that? Is it true? Is it not? Um, I mean, the first people have done things, despicable things, for sure, mm-hmm. and that has been absolutely name to God. Absolutely. So very important not to do that. But how do you? Well, I mean, I have down the number one is the integrative evidence-based approach. Yeah. Just like your husband said, um, if, if the truth about God's character that He is love, the way His government operates, His methods and principles, the Scripture science and nature and experience, if what this person is wanting to do or is doing or this concept that you have bumps up against any of those in conflict, it's real cause for question. Yes, Wendell. Isaiah 8.20, to the law and to the testimony. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that is to the law and the testimony of God and Christ through his life on earth. Right. You know, and Isaiah had a certain amount of evidence. Mm-hmm. And yet with Christ being here, we even have more, more. demonstration evidence. Yeah. And so to the law and to the testimony, if they did not speak according to this word, is because there's no light in them, or as other translations, there's no dawn or there's no future. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think we pray for wisdom. We pray for discernment. He's promised to give it to us if we ask. Yeah. Through 
to me, I have to picture it as that clear pillar with sunlight shining through it. That's God's character. Mm -hmm. Once you really understand who He is and that He's not vindictive and vengeful and angry, then any time someone says something to you or or expresses a doctrine that they believe, or something we've been taught from since childhood. Mm-hmm. When you say bumps up against, it pictures yeah. you know, pictures in my mind. I, I have to sift it through that yeah. clear pillar of truth about God. And if it makes him sound bad, or angry, or vindictive, or mm-hmm. vengeful, then I need to go back and look at that very doctrine, that very thought, yeah. and say, is this just something I've been taught over and over until yeah. I just spit it out when that right. comes up? Or is it truth? Exactly. And that has, that has helped me. It's very helpful. Natural law concepts are very helpful mm-hmm. because they are not, they're not prejudiced. You know what I mean? They have no bias. They are applicable across the board without prejudice. So it's very helpful to sift things through a natural law lens and see, see how it, how it fleshes out. Did I have a comment over here? So, Again, one of the founders of our church, I think, is uh, is saying this is not something that we should shy away from, this investigation of doctrine. We've used this quote in this class before, but I'm going to read it again. There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed. I'm going to read that again. (laughs) There is no excuse for anyone in taking the position that there is no more truth to be revealed and that all our expositions of Scripture are without an error. The fact that certain doctrines have been held as truth for many years by our people is not a proof that our ideas are infallible. Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. We are living in perilous times, and it does not become us to accept everything claimed to be truth without examining it thoroughly. Neither can we afford to reject anything that bears the fruits of the Spirit of God, but we should be teachable, meek, and lowly of heart. There are those who oppose everything that is not in accordance with their own ideas, and by so doing they endanger their eternal interest as verily as did the Jewish nation in their rejection of Christ himself. The Lord designs that our opinions shall be put to the test, that we may see the necessity of closely examining the living oracles to see whether or not we are in the faith. Many who claim to believe the truth have settled down at their ease, saying, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That was written a significant time ago. And if we are not more settled now. All right, so that was the response to how do we know? Who tested? <laughs> Let's look at Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson is about uh, the Sermon on the Mount that's entitled Christ's Greatest Sermon. The quarterly says that the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Golden Rule, the Beatitudes, is often hailed in literature as the essence of Christianity. Has anyone ever heard it referred to like that? I haven't. I kind of wish it were true. (laughs) Yes. Oh, that it were true. It's also been referred to as the ordination charge to the Twelve Disciples. 
since it appears to take place chronologically, at least in Luke, uh, right after the 12 disciples were chosen. Um, Luke's account is found in chapter 6, verses 20 through 49. We won't read the whole thing. We'll just look at a couple parts of it. Um, first part of the sermon is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes. Um, it's interesting, the story is only recounted in two of the Gospels, in uh, Matthew and Luke. And it seems like Luke or Luke's translators kept his interpretation much more literal and temporal. Um, so let's take a look at some of the, I call it backwards, upside-down math that seems to be prevalent in God's kingdom that's just opposite of earthly kingdoms. So what traits has he declared as blessed or blessed in the Beatitudes? What are some of them? Poor, hungry, or sad. <laughs> yeah. Poor in spirit. Poor, like I said, Luke leaves it strictly at poor. <laughs> Matthew talks about poor in spirit. Uh, Luke says hungry. Matthew is more hungering and thirsting for righteousness, but I'm guessing food's in there as well. Weeping and mourning. <clears throat> Hated, excluded, insulted, rejected, persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are all the exalted qualities. Interesting. And then what are the woes? Who, who is he cautioning? What traits is he cautioning against? Rich. It's, it's kind of the opposite. Rich or self-satisfied. Well-fed. Arrogant. Arrogant. Somebody that laughs, thinks everything's fun and games. People in a popularity contest, flattered, concerned with what other people think. I mean, he had just called the disciples. These were fishermen, tax collectors, very ordinary men. Can you imagine how strange and crazy and illogical these concepts must have sounded to them? God's kingdom is nothing like worldly kingdoms. His government operates nothing like earthly government, and I would submit that his natural design laws are nothing like human-imposed laws. Well, then it probably got even weirder when you got down to verses 27 through 38. And those, those texts in the message read like this. To you who are ready for the truth, I say this. Love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer for that person. If someone slaps you in the face, stand there and take it. If someone grabs your shirt, gift wrap your best coat and make it a present for him. If someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit-for-tat stuff. Live generously. Here is a simple rule of thumb for behavior. Ask yourself what you would want people to do for you then take the initiative and do it for them. If you only love the lovable, do you expect a pat on the back? Run-of-the-mill sinners do that. If you only help those who help you, do you expect a medal? Garden-variety sinners do that. If you only give for what you hope to get out of it, do you think that that is charity? The stingiest of pawnbrokers do that. I tell you, love your enemies. Help and give without expecting a return. I promise you will never regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives towards us, generously and graciously. 
even when we are at our worst. Our Father is kind, so you be kind. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back. But not merely given back, given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Uh, it's tough to get my mind around these concepts. Uh, every day, I don't know. Some days, most days. It's literally 180 degrees backwards. But if you think of the Hatfields and McCoys, for example, mm-hmm. what did the tit-for-tat thing do? It like, knocked them out. You know? Correct. The, both sides lost in that. So what is ever going to change that mm-hmm. I'm going to get back at you for what you've done to me? It doesn't. If nobody, if everyone takes that, we would all kill each other off. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes one person being yeah. willing to break that cycle and say, no matter what you do to me, mm-hmm. it's not going to change who I am, and I am loving towards you. Right. What's the... The Gandhi quote? Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Um, it's what he said, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for the a tooth leaves yeah. the whole world... Will be blind. Well, I was I was thinking it was the tooth for two leaves them blind and gumming their food or something. <laughs> yeah, there's no end to that. And this is the heaping coals of fire on their head. Have you ever tried this with an enemy? It's remarkable. Not just I mean, it may heap coals of fire on their head, but it does something to you too. You cannot continue to be an enemy of somebody if you are truly compassionately in prayer for them. It, it just can't happen. It's antithetical. Both won't be true. And it helps you to realize that a lot of times people hurt you because they themselves are hurt and Absolutely. never heal from that. Absolutely. You to be the hapless victim that got close to It might not even have anything to, to do with you. hurt by the raging fire that's in Absolutely. The campfire is nice and warm when it's in distance, <laughs> but the closer they come yeah. to you, the more the chance you have of being hurt by them. Right. Because that's who they are. And what a horrible life that would be <laughs> to be the person who has a raging fire. Yes. Inside. Who, who can do only but hurt people that get closer to them. And it may be hurting people that they love. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not the malice, the intent is not always there. And yes, when, when you pray to, to be able to, to look at this person or see this person the way God sees them as another child of God, you cannot help but have compassion because you know that's where the, the hurt and the anger and the striking out is coming from. And, some people and you want to heal that. And some people call Christianity a crutch. But in fact, I think it's a real strength because Absolutely. a true Christian can take a bullet Absolutely. and not pass it on. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in real world, we take the pain someone gives us and, and make we sure are, we pass it to everybody, Absolutely. our children, our Absolutely. Children, everybody gets the benefit of that bullet, but a Christian can stop the bullet. Yeah. And that's a true strength to take it, to heal from well it, said. and not pass it on. Well said. Also, Lori, in, in my reading this week, I'm trying to remember where I read this. I can't place it right now. But the concept that when somebody wrongs us, they are really wronging God. Mm-hmm. That's who their anger is at, at the base level. Because 
they when we hurt someone else, we're hurting God's child. Right. And it's really more about that bigger picture than the person that they aim the bullet at. Mm-hmm. In essence, that's yeah. really hard in this society too, because our, mm-hmm. our whole mindset is one of self-protection. Of course, insurance, <laughs> you know, carry permit, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you differentiate that from having proper boundaries with people? Right, that's, that's hard to. And it's not to say those things are wrong. How do you balance it all? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you balance healthy boundaries with it? Yeah. Well, and it's just the concept that that doing that that. Letting somebody smack you or if they take something from you, give them something else, that's envisioned as, as weakness. Mm-hmm. That, those are not characteristics that are valued in human society. You would be looked at as a, as a doormat. That's of abused wives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stay in marriage. Absolutely. They're supposed to take it, whatever it mm-hmm. is. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that has to it be. Is. That is, I think, a very fine line and a dangerous one because I think many people were raised as Christians with the concept that being a Christian means you're a doormat. Mm -hmm. Submission. What you said. Yeah. And I do not think somehow uh, trying to sift this through, Christ had a confidence and presence to Him that was always there, Mm -hmm. and. I don't think he was a doormat. No, not at all. And if we look at if we look at our natural law concepts and, and what we've learned about, let's say some, let's talk about the the abused woman um, or any person whose freedom has been infringed upon, um, and they choose to stay in that relationship or in that situation repeatedly. There's a couple of testable law-like things that happen that are totally predictable. Do you remember what they are? Three. Three. He would know this because <laughs> this has been part of his study. Tell us. Well, first of all, love is damaged. Correct. And if persisted in it, it will be completely destroyed. Mm-hmm. And that is universal. Love will be damaged. Across the board. <clears throat> and then the other two are options. Number one, either rebellion will be instilled. Right. Or... If the person chooses to remain in an abusive relationship, um, continually sacrificing of, of his or her own identity, then they become a shadow of the person mm-hmm. of the abuser, right. and they, they they develop a mindset exactly like the abuser. And, well, it was not his fault. I I, I should have had dinner ready on time. I deserved it. Mm-hmm. You know, that mentality. They, they, so, yeah. they think they deserve. So it. love is always damaged, and you either develop a a rebellion is instilled, or you develop the mindset, uh, you become a shadow of the abuser. These are testable, predictable outcomes. Right. You can't say healthy. That's correct. That's correct. And love always does what's best for the other person. Mm-hmm. So, and does staying and letting this person continue to abuse you and warp your character, does that uplift them? Does that grow them? Is that best for the other person? So, I mean, there is, again, there are... There are lenses you can look through and bump these concepts up. What he's talking about when he says loving your enemy and giving your coat, I don't think it's anything like an abused woman saying, I'm going to stay here and let you continue to warp your character. It's That's not the loving thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we've quoted over and over through the years that, uh, you know, love your neighbor mm-hmm. yourself. 
It says as yourself, not instead of yourself. Correct. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. We forget that. <laughs> well said. Yeah. Love your neighbor. Makes a long unless you have mm-hmm. understood the love God has for you and that you are worthy of that love. You know, what makes me different than mm-hmm. a neighbor as right. far as being a recipient for love? That. Very nice. Oh, we are not going to get to talk about neighbors. That was That's all the way in Thursday where we talk about the Good Samaritan. Um, well, let's talk about it a little bit. We've got a couple minutes. So Tuesday's lesson starts to talk about, um, the, the title is A New Family, but he's Jesus was introducing a new concept of family, a new concept of neighbor, a new concept of community, of what's valued, as we just read, um, He wanted it to be under the banner of agape love, unmerited, non-exclusive, universal, sacrificial, no divisions, which at that time there were at least as many, if not more, than there are today with caste and class and color and language and tribe and religious denomination. So, yeah, really no different than that. Um, So Christ created a new family, one in harmony with his original design, It's from the quarterly. This family reflects the original, universal, and ideal concept enshrined in the Genesis creation, which attests that every human being is created in the image of God and therefore equal before him. So let's look at what are some of the typical walls and divisions that Christ tore down in the course of his ministry. Prosperity means you're blessed by God, and, and poverty means you're blessed by Satan. Right. Same with illness. Yes. Who, who sinned? Right. Yes. Um, what about profession and reputation? He chose tax collectors. He associated with prostitutes. He was in the home of sinners regularly. Um, prejudice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bias, prejudice, race. Look at the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, they're... Look at our look at our look at the headlines. Look at our country. Look at Baltimore. Look at Ferguson. I mean, this is this is the level of strife. This is the I think the crux of the the Good Samaritan parable is that there was such a racial divide and really hatred between these two these two countries or these two nationalities that it was so dramatic that a Samaritan would stop and help. This person, when the priest and the Levite, all right, we're skipping to Thursday, just in my head, though. (laughs) The priest and the Levite, just like the the attorney that was asking Christ questions, had the law on his arm when Christ asked him, what does it say? He knew it. He told him. He recited it. So it was on his arm. It was on his lips. It wasn't in his heart. So the priest and the Levite, who also knew had been taught and was probably wearing it on their arm, passed by the man that needed help. Whereas the Samaritan, who may have never been taught a word about it, he may be the one asking Christ, what are, what's the scars in your hands? But his heart had been transformed, and he was living in compassion and unselfishness, and he stopped and helped the man. Yes. The bottom, you talked about Thursday, the bottom highlighted area is very appropriate for the the perspective. And that is the priest and the Levite asked themselves the question, what would happen to us if we stopped and helped this man? Mm -hmm. The Samaritan asked, what would happen to this man 
if, if I, I don't stop help. and help. I totally agree. And in the in the teacher section, it's it also said what is important to remember is that this parable does not say anything about what we can do to be saved, which was the attorney's original question. Its emphasis is on how a converted person on the path to healing or a saved person ought to live. All right, so we're over time. Let's close. Father, uh, we thank you so much. Wow, that you went to these unbelievable lengths so that we are without excuse. Let us continue to let Christ be our master teacher. Um, Let us keep learning about who you are um, and who you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name.